Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Uh, and with us, we have Lisa Gill. Lisa is the author, or co-author, should I say, of this book, uh, which we'll get into, Moose Heads on the Table, an awesome title, and the host of the Leadermorphosis podcast. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So, Moose Heads on the Table, stories about self-managing organizations from Sweden. Now, there may be... Uh, people uh, listening to this who aren't a hundred percent clear on what we mean by self-managing. So maybe let's start start there. What what does that that mean, and sort of um, work out from there? Yeah, well, um, a definition that I really like um, was written by Mike Lee, who I know you've had on your podcast as well, and Amy Edmondson, um, which is self-managing organisations are organisations that have completely decentralised authority across the whole organization so it's not to me it's not just self-managing teams although I work with those as well but a self-managing organization is one where all authority has been decentralized there's no one person who can override or make a decision about anyone else's work or job and why on earth would anybody want to organize an organization like that Yeah, well, yeah, I think I know that uh, my co-author, Karen, when she first started talking about these ideas, she said she used to be met with either laughter, you know, like this is outrageous and ridiculous or anger, like what the hell are you talking about? Or just complete scepticism. Whereas nowadays, it seems like even just in the last couple of years, there's a real increase in appetite for these ideas where it's not really radical anymore. A lot of people are recognizing that, yeah, it makes sense to have you know, teams that have greater autonomy in terms of decision making because this kind of pyramid or hierarchical bureaucratic structure is slow, um, you know, especially in the pandemic and things like that. It's just much more agile and responsive to have decentralized teams and to push the decision making authority to the front lines of the action where all of that's happening. So, Oh, yeah, and countless benefits that I'm sure maybe we'll talk about as the conversation goes on. But for me also, benefits are human. That's what I'm really interested in, in terms of development and in terms of learning and growing together and bringing our whole selves to work, which means a win-win for everyone because if I'm bringing more of myself and I'm bringing more of my talents, more of my intuitions that will benefit the organization. So for me, it's kind of a, a no-brainer, but I recognise that it's not for everyone and it can feel quite far away for a lot of people. So I think there's a spectrum and I'm interested in like, you know, what are some of the different moves that you could take along the spectrum? Right. Yeah. Okay. So that, that makes sense. I suppose what resonates to me there is bringing your whole self to work. Um, you know, I've, I've had a history of working in large organisations and that's, yeah, something I guess I always yearn for. Um and I can see how this type of environment allows more for that. And then agil- agility, which, of course, is the, the buzzword right now. But, of course, if people are more autonomous within you know, their team or their division, they're able to uh, flexibly orient themselves to the market more easily, right? Is, is that way of looking at it? Yeah, definitely. And so how did you get interested in this? You know, what brought you to self, self-management? self yeah. yeah, well, I think I, I ended up in it by accident. Uh, 
originally I studied drama way back at university and I worked in a number of different industries for many years. I kind of gave up on acting pretty fast. I was not very good at auditions. But uh, I think looking back and connecting the dots backwards, I've always been interested in people and seeing the potential in people and what the conditions are that bring out the best in people. And um, back in about 2010-11, I ended up in a learning and development organisation and quickly started to become familiarised with more radical ideas uh, and became very interested in that. And then I set up my own company and then I met my co-author, Karen, in January 2016. And we started, we just hit it off straight away and she told me about these stories, these organisations she'd helped transform going right back to the 90s, which was amazing to me because I had just read Reinventing Organisations by Frederick Leloux and I was sort of, you know, really excited about that. And this feels new and exciting. Well, and what's for that someone. book for, pe- for people who've not heard of that book, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I think um, to me, it's sort of, I think for a lot of, I mean, people on my podcast, just about everyone I've had on the podcast mentions it or has been inspired by it. Perhaps in the same way that many people have been inspired by Ricardo Semler um, back in the 80s, 90s. So maybe Frederick Leloux was almost like, the self-management or the new ways of working pioneer of our generation. Um, But he talks about bringing your whole self to work and the other two components of what he calls teal organizations being self-management and evolutionary purpose. So I think a lot of people resonate with that book of his because it was very soulful in a way that previous business books haven't been. Um, Especially from an ex-McKinsey consultant, right? Well, yeah, quite. (laughs) so yeah so so many people I've met on on this journey that I now collaborate with that was the original piece that connected us the shared love of that book and the desire to try and make those ideas a reality right um so you found that book you found Karen and then and then what you started to get involved with helping organizations make this transition or make the moves as you you said earlier yeah yeah I mean that had um been my intention when I set up my own company in 2015 but I didn't know quite how to do it and it was through meeting people like Karen and others that uh, I started to learn so Karen's training company tough leadership training uh, I then started to become one of the trainers with them because they're approach to self-management and new ways of leading um, really resonated with me and I met some other collaborators that I still work with today and we really just started learning by doing by practicing new ways of working and being together ourselves um, and doing a lot of reading and having a lot of conversations and and then supporting others to do the same so nowadays almost all of my work is supporting people in teams and organizations that want to work in this way, or they are already on their journey to working this way. And they just want a little bit of coaching and support. Um, so it was, I think so much of it is about the humans, right? That you meet and and the people that you learn from and with at the right time. Right. And and so how was it going into tough? I mean, <laughs> how tough was it? <laughs> Yeah, you know, what was what was what was painful uh, about that, if anything? You know, moving to that kind of self managing, and what did you, you what did you you know love about it as as you 
started to yeah. experience that type of culture yeah I mean when I when I met Karen she invited me and a few other of our peers to to do the tough leadership training the, the sort of flagship course is called step one it's four-day training it's pretty intensive and yeah it's called tough because it's tough it's really tough to unlearn habits and and ways of leading ways of being um and i i haven't really been a manager much in my life but i had been a coach and so i went into it thinking ah oh, yeah i know how to be empowering i know how to be coaching i'll be great at this and realized, you know, I have so many, as we all do, pitfalls and learned behaviors and things where we do too much, really, I think, where we want to give advice, we want to help, we want to steer. And it takes a lot to unlearn that and then to learn new ways of being that really help other people to draw on their own capacity and potential. Mm-hmm. So that course was my first um, interaction with tough leadership training. And then Karen and I started talking about writing this book together. And in the process of that, started talking about, well, what if I became a tough trainer? Would I be interested in that? And and that became a, a several years long process um, of kind of being immersed in that world. Uh, and it and it's tough to be a tough trainer too. It's a lot of a lot of development work, and um, it's really like getting a magnifying glass and looking at how how we are being so that was something that we really wanted to capture in the book is that this is an approach to self-management or new ways of working that's not about structures and processes but it's about our mindset and our way of being and how we relate to each other and how that profoundly affects how other people show up around us or not so that to me was always really interesting and i think something that tough does that's very unique still um so, yeah, that's been a, a really good process. And I, and I think people who go on the training experience a similar version of that. Right. Yes. And that's something that I suppose is different, you know, for people who've got some familiarity with this topic and maybe they've heard of holacracy and maybe they've heard of um, Zappos and they've heard of these, you know, uh, uh, flat organizations, Valve and and you yeah this this book really doesn't mention structure or process at all right it's just a bunch of stories about people's experiences in giving away power i mean i suppose that's how i might sum it up um yeah and it's about a way of being it's about a way of being as a leader and how some leaders are able to make this transition and others are not um and the sort of the the structure that emerges sort of is downstream, right? It seems to me from that shift in being. Yeah. And I think, I think in that sense, it's kind of, you could say organizational operating system agnostic that. <laughs> That's uh, a phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, so I, I think, you know, I hope that people could read this book or uh, learn this methodology or some of these principles and then on top of that whether you choose to be you know completely self-managing or whether you choose to implement holacracy or agile or any other of these sort of apps you could say um i think this foundation of you know how are we being and what's our mindset what's the paradigm from which we're operating and sort of looking at that first and then i think 
yeah, you can put on top of that whatever sort of structures and processes that you want, uh, whether you import those or whether you then create those together. But I think um, the premise of, of the book and this approach is that once once you create the right climate, the right conditions, on top of that, you can do a lot of things that if you don't do that work first, sometimes you'll bump up against these obstacles where you realize uh, we're actually trying to, you know, install a new app if I want to continue that analogy, but the operating system's outdated and it's, so it's going to have bugs and it's not going to work and it's going to be slow and, you know. Right. I get it. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested then, then for you. So you did this step, step one, right? The, the, the course, and you already had a coaching mindset. You, you'd already been swimming in some of these ideas for a while. And there may be other people listening, thinking, okay, you know, I'm there or thereabouts. But yeah, what specifically could you kind of illustrate came up for you in that training that, that, that you were confronted with in terms of your own being and, and the transition you had to make? Yeah, well, I think um, it's in terms of most people, um, when they do the training, especially nowadays, um, have a sense that when we do the kind of the introduction and the pitch of like, you know, this, this is a new way of working. Here's what it's like. Everyone's kind of nodding. like Yeah. 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 We get this, you know, I've read this in Harvard business review. I think I'm pretty coaching. I'm pretty empowering. I think I'm a pretty good leader. Uh, and it's really, um, only when you start to practice typical conversations and, and have this lens of, we refer refer to it as like the difference between a parent-child dynamic and an adult-to-adult dynamic. And once you start looking at things through that lens at quite a detailed level under the surface, then you start to see um, habits and behaviours and ways of being that are in the way for that. So with me, I I had had brief experiences of being a manager, like a project manager. And I had also trained as a coach. I'd, I'd done NLP training and I was a master practitioner and I'd done some coach training. So I thought I was pretty self-aware and pretty adult, adult in terms of how I lead or how I show up. But I was confronted with how much I um, was, my version of being like a parent was being too nice, too cautious, too fluffy. So I'd say a lot of things and I would tiptoe around people uh, and I would try and be really nice and add a lot of stuff. I was doing a lot of work to take care of other people. And the feedback I got was that this was actually disempowering, that this was, and it sends a message to people that I don't quite think you're up for this or, you know, I'm treating you like you're fragile, like you need a lot of help and sort of, you know, nurturing and nudging along. Whereas actually when you're really direct with someone, when you strip away all of that fluff and cotton wool, it telegraphs to people that I respect you, I relate to you as a capable, creative, intelligent adult, and I'm going to give you the headline and I don't need to do all of that stuff because you can handle it, you know? Um, So I learned to do a lot less um, was my kind of main takeaway, really. Uh, And that doing that was very liberating for me because it meant and, and what less in terms of the sort of caring and the couching of yeah, your message and, is that and what also you mean? yeah and also thinking that so many of us think a lot you know when we're listening we're really listening for 
what I'm going to say next, or, oh, I have a solution for this, or I have some advice that I can give, um, or, you know, what should I ask now? What should I say? And, and we're thinking a lot and doing a lot of work. And managers especially, I think the longer you've been a manager, the more you'll do this probably, where you're, you know, you've been promoted for being smart, for being a problem solver, for being responsible, for being analytical. And all of these things get in the way when you want to work in a more self-managing team because it impedes other people drawing on their own initiative. So doing less is, it's, we sometimes say in the trainings to be lazy, like sit back, ask really lazy coaching questions. Like, yeah, what do you think you could do about that? Really simple. There's a great book actually called The Advice uh, Trap, The Advice Trap. Um, and he talks about all of these traps we fall into as managers, as coaches, as colleagues, where we think our advice is brilliant. And so often it's not. <laughs> and what's really needed is just to listen and be with someone be a sounding board, ask a few questions, and that person could get to something really useful much quicker than if I try and solve it and add my stuff into the equation. Right. Um, that's interesting, yes. Just, it reminds me of a friend of mine who runs a pub in the Midlands in England, and uh, he works like half a day a week. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how it's doing right now in the COVID, but... Um, I don't suppose he's ever read Frederick Leloux's book, but it would seem to me that he had a very much a self-managing pub because he got to the point where as the landlord, he, he did virtually nothing. And you might look at him and think, God, that guy's lazy or he's got it easy, right? But he was certainly whole, you know, we, now you talk in the book about holding space, but he was sort of, I suppose, creating a context for everybody who worked in that pub that they could, you know, manage their own work and that they clearly didn't need him, certainly on a day-to-day -day basis, to run the pub. And so he's just sort of stepped away. Yeah, there's so many examples like that, which is what I love when I come across an example of someone who just intuitively does this and has yeah, never heard I think the he term self-management. Yeah, yeah. And, and some people do just have this way of being naturally because they don't, for them, it would be crazy to do anything else, to micromanage or, you know. So sometimes you get these real black sheep that do this naturally. Um, and other times there's a lot of unlearning and relearning to do, I think. Right. And who so far has inspired you the most or the company that's inspired you the most on your travels with this? Hmm. There's so there's so many different examples and it depends on a lot of different criteria, I guess. But um I think I'm I'm inspired by organizations that kind of integrate uh the, the two dimensions of, of structures and processes and this like more um human way of being mindset piece um and i think one example i like to talk about is um well-being teams which is in the kind of health and social care sector and i think in that sector this this way of working is so needed because organizations are having to do more with less and in really tough conditions and you generally have people who are very capable and very passionate about their work you know they want to deliver great person-centered care for example and it's often the bureaucracy that gets in the way of them doing that and well-being teams 
founded by uh, an amazing woman called Helen Sanderson. To me, is such a great example because they were inspired by Burtzorg, which is right. an organization that, for those who have read Frederick Lelou's book, will be familiar with. But they're kind of the poster child, I think, of self-managing organizations. They're, they're quite large. I think they're about 14,000 people at the moment and self-managed teams of nurses that decide everything together in their team. And wellbeing teams is based in the UK and they were inspired by Burtzorg. But Helen and her colleagues also share what they're learning very transparently. Um, so, for example, they do a lot of work around uh, team agreements and um, how to make decisions together. Uh, and they also have come up with some really clever kind of workarounds for if you're regulated, that can often be tricky. How do you f- how do you fit into external structures out there in the world like regulators when you're trying to organize in a radically different way um so they've invented these confirmation practices where instead of having a manager supervising and kind of micromanaging and checking everyone's doing the things they need to do to make sure that no one dies or is you know neglected they have a team-based peer-to-peer based system of these confirmation statements that they review each week together so they've developed some really clever practices, but they also very much embody this um, kind of compassionate human, bringing your whole self to work piece. Um, and they're constantly striving for ways to make that even more consistent and even more lived. Um, so that's an example that I, I take a lot of inspiration from. Right. And, and it's the marriage of the structures and the, and the mindset that you think is working really well there. Yeah, and I think they're a good example of an organization that draws on lots of different sources of inspiration. So they're very inspired by, you know, Brenny Brown's work about trust and shame and all of that kind of stuff and uh, the Ready in the US and their tension and practice cards and all of these different uh, processes and, and case studies and organizations and then making them their own and developing their own way of doing it because there's no one size fits all with this stuff it's very much i think you have to find your own way and your own path and so i think they're a good example of that right and and something you said in there resonated about the people being passionate about their work because there's a great example of failure i think in this story about the call center that uh karen took on right mm. um who, who worked with at tough training and and the co-author of the book where she came to the conclusion this is my read on it right and you tell me what you think but that it's no good give empowering a bunch of people to self-manage an organization that they ultimately don't care about in a in a you know in a realm in which they're not passionate and so so you you this doesn't really so it, so i think the tra- more traditional types of management uh can work when people aren't passionate right because you can you know, you can wield the stick and you can, you know, you can push people along and, uh, you know, in certain contexts that can work and you can make a business from it. But when you're trying to, when you're trying to hand over power, when people aren't passionate about what they're doing, it, it, well, at least in this case, it failed. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, um, there are probably different approaches to this that, and perhaps people have found in other contexts, that's not an issue, but in my experience, when you, and I've heard this from many different people in, in their examples as well, 
often when when you move towards a more self-managing structure, it makes things a lot more visible. So it becomes very clear who uh, who were the people who were really energized and putting in a lot of work and who were the people who were sort of coasting and dragging their feet a little bit. And, and it starts to become clearer whose purpose is aligned with the companies and whose isn't. And I think that in in the case of that call center and in other cases as well self-management works best when when people do care about the organization and the purpose and i think karen also found in 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 some of those cases that competence matters that if you're if you're um if it's not your calling and you know you don't have that's why Bertzog works for example because they have really high quality competent nurses doing the work who are very skilled and you know highly professional at what they're doing so it 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 really it seems like that's really important um so if you're someone that just wants to do a nine to five job uh and has a bit of like a an employed mindset and you just want to clock in and clock out probably a self-managing organization is not going to be the place for you and I don't think there's anything wrong in that. Everyone's different and people are often at different stages in their life. But I think self-management really works best when people are passionate about the work, when they're dedicated and committed to developing and growing and, and kind of strive for a high quality in their work um, and are prepared. There can be different levels but are and are interested in how, you know, working on the organization as well as in the organization to different degrees. Yeah. No, that's right. But I suppose no amount of working on the organization is going to make a difference if ultimately people in the organization don't don't care, right? Or, yeah. And I, I yeah. think if you compare if you compare that call center to Zappos, for example, Zappos has built its culture on, you know, highly customer centric people who really love their jobs. Those people love working in those roles. So that's a, a different example. Um and there were other kind of external factors as well, like the industry and the particular sector that that call center was in that ultimately meant that that the company had to close down. Um, but it's so it's so inspiring that those people in that organization have gone on to do other things and they came out having learned and grown and developed huge amounts and, and gone on to find work that they really did care about. So it kind of released them in a way. <laughs> from the shackles of this kind of dreary organization that they never really wanted to be part of in the first place. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And it does remind me of when I've worked with you know, agile teams that, you know, applying agile practice can have a similar effect. It kind of exposes the people who aren't really uh, up for it. Right. And, uh, and it, yeah, it becomes much more transparent. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. You discovered the same. The same thing. Yeah, and I think those transparent conversations are are useful. I know that um, another organisation, Busy. I think you've spoken to Tom Vandeleur yes. on the podcast, yeah. And he talks about how having conversations about purpose that they've had situations where someone, an, an employee in their organisation, has realised actually my purpose is this. I'm going to go and do this instead. That's where my heart is, and everyone's celebrating so that's great you found your purpose and you're going to go and do that and we love that and we're happy for you we'll miss you but go and do that and actually that person ended up coming back and and returning and saying no actually I do like it here and this is my place and I think actually Menlo 
you've also spoken to Richard and Menlo mm. Innovations is the same. They have people that, that go and, and explore something else and then they come back to Menlo because they realize that it is in line with their purpose and it is special there. And I think that's really a testament to the culture of those places and important because if it's not, I don't think we should try and convince people to stay in an organization. I think it's much better to have, again, these adult to adult conversations of, is this the right place for you? And if it's not, let's support you to find what is the right place for you, even if it's not here, because that's better for all of us, right? Yeah. And that is more adult, to, you know, because I could think of the equivalent conversation in an adult child context, and it might be something like, you, you know, you don't make the grade kid, you know, you're not good enough, you know, out. Whereas yeah. an adult to adult is, you know, telling it like it is, it doesn't seem like you you fit here it doesn't seem like you're energized by this work right yeah and and self-managing organizations that have sophisticated role design processes like ian martin group for example in canada recruitment company where anyone in the organization can trigger a role advice process and say hey i'm thinking i'd like to change my role to something like this um, and gets advice from their colleagues who might say uh, or well, have you spoken to so-and-so and have you considered this? And yeah, have you figured how this might impact on that? So it's, it becomes much more about granular roles and people finding their place rather than you join the organization in this job description and, you know, that's it, you're locked in or you have to go through some rigid, pre-designed, predetermined kind of progression path, um, which is a very different approach to well, let's sense into what are the emerging needs of the organization. Where are your, where's your energy going? What's, what's a need that matches what you need and what the organization needs? And let's see if we can create something. So I, I think that's also kind of interesting to see that across these different examples, a, a different way of looking at roles and development and career progression. Because when it's a flat organization, there's no ladder. I don't like using the word flat, really, but it's flatter. <laughs> And then a lot of people wonder, well, what does progression look like? Or what does career development look like if suddenly, you know, VP of this or manager or head of this is out the window? What what does progression look like? Right. Yes. And and that and that can be confronting for people because that's got to come from within in that context. There is no path laid out for me by HR, right? Yeah. I've got I've got to look within and decide for myself and of course you know I might confer with others but ultimately I self-direct right and you know where I might next go in this organization yeah and the rest of society of course is still driven by these symbols of status so there's also probably a grieving process of like oh I thought my whole career was going to be going towards being a manager or a head or a VP of this that's no longer an option and yet that's what the external world world recognizes as success or you know progress or you know can, am i willing to let that go or maybe maybe i'm not so that's it's interesting even if you are in a self-managing organization you're in a bubble because it's still so much in the minority in terms of most organizations out there you know your linkedin profile and stuff so it's quite a different different mindset yeah i mean that a very you know it's a very different mindset isn't it it's it's a different yeah it's it's a different paradigm you know i know that word gets overused but i think it genuinely is 
and I'm, and I'm just noticing the crossover with with complexity here. So we've had several people on the podcast who talk about you know, complexity theory, and one of the sort of the major ideas within that field is this idea of sensing into hmm. sensing into the complex system, sensing into what's emerging. And it seems to me what you're describing is organisations that are sort of better equipped at sensing into you know emergent needs of well, the employees, but then potentially customers as well is that is that right yeah definitely it reminds me of the very first self-managing organization i visited was um a number of years ago small organization in bournemouth called matt black systems oh yes yeah in fact yeah in fact i've met uh, the ceo yeah yeah julian um and he and i were having a conversation and he was describing it to me uh he was saying it's it's a bit like um applying the idea of how evolution works that you know you have evolution doesn't take one species and then in a linear fashion kind of evolve it and develop it because then if if environmental circumstances change then that species would be wiped out and then that would be it evolution fires off all of these different changes and experiments you could call them um so that all of the uh, all of those different things out there, some will survive, some will flourish and some will die. But there's enough out there that, that there'll be mutations and, and evolution and, and there'll be some kind of success. And I think organisations um, like self-managing organisations are dealing with complexity in that more sophisticated way, which is instead of, you know, one big strategy or one, you know, five-year plan or these more kind of rigid uh, speculative processes it's like let's fire out lots of different experiments let's have people really with their fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the organization and be sensing and responding in lots of little micro movements and that's how we'll succeed especially you know when things like a pandemic gets thrown at you all of these organizations i'm seeing are much more resilient they're so much more quick to mobilize and respond to these times um and everyone has access to the finances and transparent information about everything that's going on and everyone feels a sense of a mental ownership a mindset of like this is ours let's get together and uh, address this instead of some centralized team doing some kind of response to covid and what do we need to do like everyone's already on it you know and they're coming up with multiple proposals all over the place and some decision making process is happening and it can be really fast which is a completely different paradigm. Right. Yes, and I think there may be two things at play because I think at one, I think that's true that the self-managing teams may have been much better equipped to handle it, but also I think a lot of traditional guys are sort of being forced into yeah. a greater degree of self-management because the, just the same structures of control just don't work or don't exist in the same way. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, fascinating, yeah. Um, one thing that you talked about, which I think is... It's sort of a, a common question or, or maybe misconception about self-managing teams is the decision-making process. And there's this perception that, oh, yeah, but isn't everything going to take to take forever when everybody has a say? And you talk about concordance decision-making in the book. Can you yeah, just talk a little bit about how decision-making works in these organizations? Yeah, I think um, I really like Samantha Slade's work on decision making and in her book going horizontal she has a sort of table that i often 
use when I'm doing workshops or talks about this, because I think a big myth and misconception, like you say, is that people assume, well, if we're not making decisions in the traditional way, in a, you know, in a self-managed organization, everyone has to decide everything and it has to be consensus and that's going to be slow and tedious. Uh, but the reality is that there is a whole suite of different decision-making processes and one of the really important tasks when you decide that you want to work in this way, or even just in a more decentralized way, is decide how we're going to decide. And step one of that is realizing that there are lots of different ways to make decisions. And before we were making them unconsciously, we were automatically de defaulting to the one or two methods that we know. And part of moving to this way of working is exploring the different options of decision making, like the advice process or like consent based decision making or like concordance. Um, and all of these are very different and require practice and they feel weird at first, but they're ways of making decisions uh, that aren't just consensus. And at the same time, they're not just, you know, top down autocratic. Yeah. Well, could you give us the sort of the highlight of each of those? Because I think there will be, be people interested in just how does this actually work? Then, So maybe that just gives people some concrete examples of how it can work. Yeah, sure. So so the first is um, in traditional organisations, you could call it autocratic, I guess, where typically a manager makes the decision. Um, and in self-managing organisations, it's not that this is now bad and we must never do that. That's also, I think, a misconception. But if you have real clarity over what everyone's roles are, then I can have uh, I can take a role based decision, which which might be that the whole team has decided that um, when it comes to, um, I don't know, a finance decision in this particular realm, I can make a decision on that. And I don't need to get input from anyone else because that's my role and I have the relevant expertise and experience and authority to do that. So we can all agree that, but the difference is we all consent to doing that as opposed to me assuming that I have that authority. Right. So, so got death one... to the autocrat, long live the autocrat, but we'll decide who gets to be autocratic. Exactly. Yeah. So it's Matt Perez, who's part of this Mexican self-managed company uh, called Nearsoft, talks about moving from a fiat hierarchy to a hierarchy that's been decided that we've all agreed on. Um, so it's not that hierarchy disappears, it's more that we end up with dynamic hierarchies uh, and, and leadership emerges depending on the problem that's being faced. So autocratic decisions become role-based decisions. Then I, I mentioned the advice process. So this is one that's famous because of Frederick Lelou's book, Reinventing Organizations. Um, but it was AES, I think, that first developed it. But the, the idea is very simple. And again, the decision-making authority ultimately lies with me, the person that initiates the decision-making process. But the idea is that I get advice from anyone who has relevant expertise and experience and anyone who's affected by the decision. So if it's a really big decision that's going to, going to affect lots of people, then it makes sense that I get more advice from more people compared to if it's a decision that's only going to affect a handful of people. And after having uh, received and sought out all of that advice, I then decide if I go ahead or not. So a lot of people get nervous when they hear that because they think, well, what if the person makes a stupid decision, even having got all of that advice? Well, then everyone's going to learn, right? <laughs> that person's going to learn, oh, that decision didn't go well, if it is a stupid decision. And their peers are going to be a little bit more wary of that person the next time they initiate an advice process. 
Um, so, but usually that doesn't happen. People are pretty clever and people don't want to make stupid decisions. So that's the advice process. And like I said, Ian Martin Britt uses it for just about everything. So role advice process, they have a compensation advice process. So once a quarter, someone can say, I'd like to change my salary. This is my case. This is why I think I should do that. And then they go and talk to other people. And then someone might say, well, actually, have you spoken to so-and-so who's putting together the budget? Because there's some numbers that are changing, I think, that might affect your proposal. Oh, great. I didn't know that. I'll go and talk to them. Um, so that's the advice process. Then I mentioned consent-based decision-making. So this come, is perhaps best known from sociocracy or holocracy, which has different versions of consent based decision making but the general gist is that rather than consensus i.e we all like this decision or um, agree with this decision it's consent so in holacracy it's uh you know i can consent to something if i agree that it doesn't move us backwards or harm us so in that case you can you kind of expand the range of what's tolerable in a group in terms of decision making whereas if i ask a question like who agrees with this decision um, it's much more tricky and you'll have people who ha hesitate whereas if i say does anyone object to this decision does anyone think this decision harms us or moves us backwards and then it's easier for people to say well no actually and then the decision goes ahead so it makes it a lot quicker for people to make decisions and move forward and try things and experiment and learn um, so there are some different consent-based decision-making processes like integrative decision-making or generative decision-making, but that's kind of the essence. Um, and then finally, concordance, which is a version of consensus, you could say, but the difference with concordance, which comes from Will Schutz's work, is that whereas consensus tends to be intellectual, uh, you know, here's the decision do people agree? And then if people don't, if not everyone agrees, then we don't go ahead. Or if everyone agrees, then we do go ahead. But concordance is a much more embodied human emotional process where there's much more space for the group to listen for and share how people really feel about that decision. So concord literally means with heart. So do I wholeheartedly agree with this? And even if I can't intellectually say a reason why I don't, that is honoured and, and listened to by the group. So the group only makes a decision if everyone can wholeheartedly say yes, with my whole heart, I can I agree with this decision or I consent to it. And you wouldn't want to use this decision making process for every decision because it would take a long time and it wouldn't be necessary. So this is the idea with, you know, choose, agree together, decide how you're going to decide. For these decisions, role-based decision-making is fine and fast and effective. But for these decisions, we want everyone on board. We want everyone's whole heart and minds behind this decision. So for these decisions, we'll use concordance, recognizing that that's going to take a bit longer. But in the long run, that's going to be important because we need people on board with that. And it's going to be a better decision if we do that. Right, right. Um, yes, which is another thing. Another, I think, emerging theme in, I suppose, this and whatever, whatever, whatever is happening to the to the world right now in terms of how we work is this idea of body, heart, you know, embodied, uh, I suppose, um, experiences in the workplace and using our bodies as a guide to, um, yeah, 
uh, what should happen next. And as a se- as a sense making organ in it in and of itself, right? It's yeah, it's, it's respecting that. Yeah, exactly. And it's also moving away from. We tend to work in binaries too. Like, is it decision A or decision B? Whereas when you have a process like concordance, you might actually realize maybe it's neither. If we actually put those aside for a moment, what is the need here, actually? What what is something that we could all live with that feels good and positive and possible? And then suddenly you might have a C that you would not have got to if you'd only said, right, decision A or decision B, let's have a vote or let's you know put it to a consensus decision. And you won't get that level of rigor or innovation or perspective if you kind of rush it and if you only do a kind of head arbitrary sort of decision right uh yes it's uh i i'm just pausing because i i recognize that this i mean it's almost like one thing to talk about okay we're going to distribute authority and that sort of hard terms that people can relate to but it's 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 almost like there's another sort of level of depth in what we're describing here which almost i can feel a bit of a discomfort talking about and i'm guessing is is almost another frontier there in terms of sort of bringing when we talk about whole human or whole person Mm. to work we mean we mean heart we mean body yeah Yeah. and this is what Frederick Lelou calls growth pain that it is you asked me about the tough training earlier and, and was it painful and I think the reality is to move to this way of working is painful like learning any new skill that's hard it's painful there's a level of discomfort the grown zone right when you go from you know, learning a new language takes time to become bilingual, um, as I'm learning with my Spanish at the moment. So there is that kind of you have to sit in that sit in the fire of that discomfort. And a lot of people, you know, don't want to do that when we're not really wired to do that as humans. We like to avoid pain and we like to go for shortcuts. But if we do really want to unlock new ways of working and being together that are more human, that are more creative, that are more agile, I think this is really the frontier, you know, like this is if we can recognize that this is tough, you know, like decision making, for example, once you really get into it, you realize, oh, there's this whole other suite of skills and practices and ways of being that we didn't realize were out there that we now need to learn. It's not just a case of stop doing that and now do this. Um, And so I think that's really the task that we're faced with. And I think if we're up for it, there's there's kind of gold on the other side of it but it's not easy that's what everyone says that i speak to in these organizations it's tough it's painful but it's really really rewarding right yeah and i I hear the same in terms of sort of the agile community is that so many agile translate transformations stall or get somewhere you know one step forward two steps back and i think it's the same thing because it is so exposing and it's it's painful for people to make make this transition sometimes i yeah i think that's a that's a very good point. And in fact, there's a there's an example in the book of someone within Tough who goes and takes a nine to five job where everything's prescribed. It's almost the way I read it. It's like as a break from it. Yeah. Like, and then comes back to Karen a year later and says, Okay, I'm <laughs> I'm up for it again, right? I can I can take it. I'm ready to kind of grow again almost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh no, I I, I can I can I can see that. And it also relates to this idea of passionate, people being passionate. I mean, about uh, their work. I mean, we had uh, John Hagel was my last guest, and he talks a lot about. Um, well, he he makes this quite bold claim that actually uh, the organisations and the individuals only those who are passionate 
um, are going to survive this sort of hyper-competitive world that we're moving into. Because if I'm competing as a, I don't know, an accountant, and I'm passionate about accounting, but the person next to me is not passionate, I'm, I'm going to be able to go through that pain to grow, to become you know, the best accountant I can be. Whereas this person uh, you know, to the left or right of me isn't in the same way. And so organizations that harness the sort of power of passion will, will be the ones that thrive. Uh, and those that sort of ignore people's passions or don't seek to uh, maximize them or maximize the potential of them aren't going to do so well. And that's, this seems to relate to the, the, this idea. You, you can't really do that unless you're creating self-managing organizations. Yeah, or I think uh, another term that I quite like is ambidextrous organizations. So especially if you're a large organization, it's probably unrealistic to think that uh, you know, anytime soon, large organizations are going to move towards self-management. But what you might end up with is is like what Danfoss is doing, where they have certain departments or arms of the organization that are self-managing, and they tend to be the ones that are working in research and development or innovation. And so when you have, you know, younger people joining the company, they don't want to join the company and go into like a bloated bureaucratic department they're more likely going to want to join one of those departments where there's a lot more autonomy and they can sort of really find their place and sense what's needed and there will also be departments in the organization that are more traditionally structured and that's fine and that works for that particular context um so i think i think that's an interesting idea and and also i was thinking as you were talking about i'm reading gary hamill's new book humanocracy Okay, and yeah. um, he he was writing uh, about uh, how in in the past, you know, meaning meaningful work was reserved only for like the artisans and the kind of craftspeople, the creative people. Whereas now we're in a stage of human civilization where a lot of people are now able to and wanting to find work that's more meaningful. It's not just the artisans, but everyone that's joining the, you know, especially younger generations that saying, hey, I don't want to just do a nine to five. I want to do a job that's purposeful and meaningful and maybe aligned with my values. So we're in an interesting point, I think, where it's not just reserved for a, a few, this, this idea of meaningful, purposeful work. So there's a great opportunity, I think, to really unlock that in people. And it, and it can be any kind of role, you know, that I've seen amazing industrial companies, factories where people on the front line, as soon as they're given permission and authority to make decisions, to actually influence things, to challenge things, to question things, they've got tons of ideas that were just there all the time and blocked by the structure of the company. And so you release all of this creative energy and, and intelligence and creativity. Um, so I think, I think it's really exciting to think about the potential uh, of organizations now that, you know, it doesn't have to be this soulless, <laughs> you know, I go to, go to the office and I turn my brain and my heart off, but it can be something more. Right. And, and the great example of this, I think it even may have been Lelou's book for the, of um the the guy who's a metal worker a sheet metal worker at favi i think is mm. is the french right um sort of auto parts manufacturer who also 
we'd get on the phone to a trader in New York to spot buy the metal they needed for the factory, right? And that just, to me, encapsulated that idea of you sort of lift the lid and you allow people to find where their talents lie. You get, yeah, people are, you know, way more capable than, than we might expect, right? And Yeah, and, and then their job description allows for, right? Like you find these in the book, Karen talks about this healthcare company and it turned out the janitor was this amazing entrepreneurial spirit and he was great at doing deals and cost saving and doing all this kind of stuff and was just waiting for the opportunity to use those talents. So I think, yeah, when we when we can find people to know this is your job. And I remember that when I was an employee, I was a terrible employee. I was very rebellious and restless. And I was so frustrated, like, well, yes, my job description is this, but I want to contribute that and I'm creative and let me do this. And it was constantly kind of battered away, like, no, 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 this is not your domain. And it's just such a waste. Right. Uh, and I guess that's a bit of a, so it's been a while since you've had a, a proper job. Yeah, I don't think I could go back now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Um, yeah, the other, I suppose the other, the other question here that, um, well, I don't know if it's a question, just it's, it's something that seemed to emerge from this book is that this only two things, really, this only really works for, um, for companies in terms of for the whole organization where the CEO and the board are, are really committed, 100% committed to, to have this happen. Um, and as soon as you take that person, or, or often when you take that individual away, we, it, the, the culture sort of reverts back to something more traditional. Um, so, so the question is, you know, is that true? And if so, how do you create sustaining self-managed organizations? Or does it always need the you know this sort of ultimate leader to hold it all together yeah i mean this is a big question that i am continuing continually exploring and i think there are different perspectives on it um i'm thinking about the example of hire in china which is a huge self-managing uh organization and I was asking someone recently about Zhang Rumin, the CEO there, you know, if if he left because he's been the vision holder of this evolution of the company for decades now, what would happen if he left? And people in hire will tell you that the system is the system that's been built around his vision is strong enough now and robust enough through the decades of kind of experimenting that if he left, it wouldn't crumble, that someone else from within would take his place and would continue that vision. So I think my sense is that it's important to recognize, I really like the work of Peter Koenig uh, and his source theory. I think it's quite a useful lens for looking at this, which is that he sees that um, there is a person who embodies this role of source which means they hold the space for a particular vision to emerge. And if that person leaves, uh, it, will, it will sort of fall away unless that person very consciously hands over the source, that role to someone else who is also 
aligned with and understands and connects with that vision. And they might do it in a different way, but we'll sort of continue to steward the essence of that. Um, so I think a lot of examples of where it's sort of uh, unraveled and it's sad how quickly it happens. There's quite a few cases yeah. of when the CEO or the founder leaves, how quickly it snaps back to kind of top down. So I think unless you're very intentional about recognizing number one, the role that that person plays and trying to almost like model what is it that they do? How is it that they're holding that role so that we can sort of understand it and codify it so it's not such a mystery, but also building systems and structures and processes and practices around it that we can all continue to uh, nurture and be responsible for so that if that person did leave or disappear suddenly, there's enough kind of scaffolding there that it wouldn't suddenly unravel. And part of this, I think, is also governance and ownership that we need to reinvent those aspects, I think, so that you don't have a board that comes in, swoops in when there are financial troubles and reverts it back to the old way. But you have some mechanisms in place that protect this way of working as well. So I think, yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. And as you speak, I wonder if this, it's almost too early in the movement for us to have good answers around it, right? We seem to have lots of examples of where people have intuitively or figured out a way to have it work and then they leave and it cr and it crumbles but mm. so maybe it's just the sort of next phase of this inquiry is how how do we create sustaining self-managing organizations maybe we've answered the question of how do we create them it's then how yeah. do we create sustaining ones i think so i think we need to study what are the principles in it and it will be unique for every organization and every individual but what are some of the commonalities and what are some of the qualities that this person embodies when they're holding that role so that we can demystify it and be much more conscious in choosing their successor for example um and also what are what are the systems that we can create around that vision that are kind of anti-fragile enough that if someone does try to poke or break or disrupt that the system will respond and kind of, you know, antibodies will push out the, <laughs> the kind of foreign invasion. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember one of the big medical institutions in the States that have gone a long way with this had something like that, you know, where they where they had a sort of senior VP move in to, to become, I think, the CEO. And yeah, the wanted to try and tried to push it back down to a more compart and got pushed out. Um, hmm. So, yes, it's... Uh, it is an, an interesting question. I, I think there's something for, emerges for me when I read these stories is one quality of these leaders, and I think it comes through in Karen in the book, is this, this desire to keep working on myself, right? Yeah. I'm going to, because it's almost like it's a continual letting go of, right? I'm letting go of my attachment to controlling this outcome or being this person or playing this role. It's like this constant inquiry of, where am I doing this thing that's having an impact that isn't uh, conducive to self-management? And then how can I not be that or unwind that? And so that seems to be at the core of somebody's holding space. Yeah. And I, I think a big insight for me that I treasure a lot was from Mickey Cashtan when I spoke to her on my podcast. And she talked about 
like an inner shift that needs to happen in all of us and that it needs to happen from both directions. So if you are a leader or a manager or you have been a leader or manager, that, as you say, I have to start to sense into like, what's my version of being a dictator, for example, you know, (laughs) even in any small way, when do I not listen? When do I interrupt? When do I butt in? Um, and, and it has to happen the other way too. So I think in terms of sustainability, we need to support people who haven't historically had power authority to step up, that that is really a challenge when you have a learned helplessness in a way, when you're used to being passive and deferring decision-making and waiting for problems to get solved or, you know, waiting for your performance appraisal or whatever, you know. To unlearn that is is really tough and we have to practice. You know, so many people say to me like, oh, Lisa, we, we declared self-management, but people aren't stepping up. Like People aren't taking initiative. Like, what's the big deal? Like, do people just need to be told what to do? And I say that it's it takes time and it takes patience and it takes compassion to kind of support people along this journey because we all start at different places. And I think if you can really help people to shift from, you know, parent to child and child to parent into this adult to adult dynamic, my hope is that then, you know, even if that if this person that's holding the role of source, if they did leave, that you because it requires courage from everyone else in the organization to speak up. If, you know, the new VP comes in, you want people to say, hey, that's not how we do things here that's not our you're culture. treating me like a child and i'm an adult yeah and I exactly to be treated and to like do an adult. that in a way that's like you know that that comes from conviction and proposals and really standing for the culture and you also need people who are in leadership roles to listen so it, it has to go both ways um and i think that i think this is really like the area as you say that needs more work and more understanding and research and development is like what are these skills these qualities these ways of being for all of us at different levels to engage with that are going to help make this way of working sustainable and resilient and you know scalable and all of those good things right yeah no that that makes sense it just reminded me as you're talking in the book as a i think one of the administrators in tough uh keeps having to ask karen can i can i, can I have some time off this week <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's been five years you don't have to ask me whether you want any time off. <laughs> yeah yeah but it's so you know it reminds me of shawshank redemption as well when when they leave prison and they have to ask for permission to go to the toilet in the, mm. when he's working in the, in the grocery store because we're just so conditioned so it really takes time to unlearn these things so maybe that's a big, maybe that's part of the sustainability is, 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 is the CEO around long enough for a sort of critical mass of the people within the organization to have grown out of those internalized shackles and uh, you grow out of a shackle or have cast <laughs> off those internalized shackles um, such that they can be the antibodies, um, you know, should uh, a new uh, senior leader try and revert things. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that's also true in the sort of agile space for people who are listening to this from an agile context is do does the transformation sort of hold this you know do, do, do people hold the space of the transformation for long enough that you've tipped an, enough people over into this 
you know, let's call it adult to adult style of working such that they can then be a stand for it mm, yeah. uh, themselves, you know, without needing to sort of lean on the stand of the, yeah. of the senior leader. Yeah. So there's this, uh, there's this example that I really like um, that some colleagues and I were talking about based on Netflix and they have this protocol called the chaos monkey, which basically knocks out at random a server in Netflix in their sort of system, their network of servers to test if there's, you know, as a kind of anti-fragility test to see if there are any, you know, weaknesses in the system. And I think it would be really interesting to to test that with a with a self-managing organization or an organization where the CEO or the founder is holding this role and to test whether whether this way of being, this way of working has really disseminated, has been distributed across the whole organization or whether it's really only one person that's holding that 100% and if they go, the whole thing collapses. Um, and sometimes it's not the CEO or founder, sometimes it's someone else. There might be someone in a project that's kind of hoarding responsibility or, you know, or doing substantially more work than is visible that people don't realize until they go off sick or, you know, so these things happen, I think, and can often be a really useful opportunity to review weaknesses in the system or to see, like, is there a way that we can make this this foundation, this kind of scaffolding even stronger so that taking away one piece is not going to make the whole tower collapse? Um, so I think it'd be cool to test that somehow. <laughs> Petition Joss to uh, <laughs> yeah. go traveling yeah. for six months. Um, yeah exactly <laughs> i think in the case of Burtzorg, my sense is that the culture there is really strong and if Jostablock did if he did disappear or leave i think i think having met a couple of the nurses there there's enough legacy there and enough enough structure and and peer support that that it would hold i think yeah i i, I yeah I mean, I've no great experience of the culture, but that would would yeah would make sense. They've built up a very strong. They seem to have built up. I suppose because because of the scale of it as well, they must have an awful lot of people yeah. now within that organisation who are now used to that way of working. I and think they the other point go that... back either. I think I think so many of them came from large healthcare organisations before that were so frustrating that they just wouldn't tolerate it. I think if someone came in and said, right, we're going to go back to targets and centralised coordination, people would be like up in arms. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing that comes to mind, and I had Amy Emson on the on the podcast, and when she talks about psychological safety, she talks about the, this asymmetry of the risk reward when speaking up. So if I keep my mouth shut, um, I'm instantly rewarded because there's no risk to my personal psychological safety um so that's so that's the uh that's the uh that's the, the uh that's the payoff for me keep, keeping quiet but if i speak up um there's an instant risk that i might be humiliated or shouted down um so there's an instant risk of of a negative outcome my positive outcome is only going to be uh, if it, if I have it at all, will only come later. Um, once you know it's whatever it is I've proposed has been discussed, and there's a positive outcome to it. So, so the payoff uh, for speaking up is is not is is delayed and is not as immediate. Uh, so that's why we have this asymmetry, right, of reward of of staying quiet versus speaking up. 
And I think about that in these cultures, right? If and how and that must contribute to the fragility because as soon as I get a manager in who's going to say, no, get back in your box, you know, you've got to do it this way. Uh, if there isn't enough people around me who are going to push back on that, you know, very quickly, I'm going to, I'm going to flip back to that mode of, oh no, you know, my payoff is going to be to keep quiet. And so mm -hmm. I think that probably contributes to this fragility of these organizations in a sense. What, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think Amy Edison's work is really relevant to this. And she and I talked about um, it. We both agree about this idea of working climate and how, how localized that is. And, um, and it can change instantly if you have a new team leader. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right that if, I think one of the things Karen says that I really like is that in a self-managing organization, everyone becomes a sensor for the culture and it's everyone's job to be a co-producer of our working climate together um, and if you can train that and practice that together and if enough people kind of hold that duty together then I think I think you're right I think it, it does need enough people to be able to do that so that even if someone does come in and maybe one or two people immediately think oh it's safer to not speak up that there are enough people who will say, no, come on, this is important. This is our culture and this is not in line with what we agreed. Let's speak up. Yeah. And so they have to feel that part of their role is co continuing to co-create the co culture. They're not just, it's not just they have some function for the business. It's that yeah. they're also yeah. sort of co-custodians of the culture. Yeah, I suppose that's exactly. an important point. And I think, I think they're rituals and micro practices can be really helpful because we are you know we're creatures of habit so if you as well as the kind of macro culture if you have you know in every meeting as we do at tough for example we we start every meeting with any moose heads does anyone have any you know a, an elephant in the room a little a, a little niggle with someone or something that they want to bring up and air out right here right now and it's it's always hard. It never gets easier to do it because it's uncomfortable, but it's become the way we do things. And there are enough people that will kind of carry that torch and they will ask this question, even if some of us think like, oh, it's just a bit easier to not. And like, I'll just keep it under the carpet, you know? Right. Yeah. And I suppose once every once that's become ingrained in the culture, if I'm just come and say, "Oh, you know, actually, let's just skip the moose heads for this meeting," people would be like, yeah. "Yeah, I guess much more um, quick to to push back if it's become habitual." Because yeah, people to some extent get a little bit addicted to their habits, don't they? So you sort of use that for positive effect. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So and when so we've, we 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 I, I I thought I might ask that question of what do we mean by moose heads, but we've. Uh, we've now revealed yeah the swedish version of uh, elephant in the room yeah <laughs> yeah so that's interesting every, every is that every every time you get together you ask that question yeah yeah and and, and sometimes you know there was a, a meeting recently where it hadn't we realized it hadn't happened for a couple of meetings and then and then someone did bring up a moose head and we all because this is the other thing as well, it's like positive reinforcement, especially if you're a leader or anyone who has social capital influence. Like you say, this asymmetry of uh, the risk of speaking up 
it's so important to to appreciate and acknowledge when people do it to say like oh thank you so much for bringing up that moose head for reminding us that this is something we do that's really important and for daring to you know be uncomfortable and and do that and and speak up and be difficult and challenge something like we really appreciate that and making that you know so uh, explicit because i think we often don't do that and and i think that's really key to reinforcing these rituals and to building and strengthening that this is the way we do things this is our culture yeah and and i guess just an important illustration of how these cultures aren't fluffy right yeah yeah exactly they're, i think they're tough you know she called she called it tough training for a reason yeah yeah karen is she's really a champion of that and and we all are at tough uh, even though some of us are more inclined towards the fluffy like me but, but i recognize that um yeah it's like the radical candor feedback framework and um and in, in amy edmondson's work as well she talks about this of, of having it's not just about psychological safety but also about accountability and without that it you end up in the comfort zone and and ultimately that breeds resentment because people you know become lax with deadlines or you don't know how to give each other feedback because you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings so so it is really this paradox, this marriage of tough and empathetic, you know, kind of challenging and supporting um, that I think takes a lot of practice and is another misconception of self-managing organizations. Oh, is it just everyone sitting around hugging and, you know, playing ping pong or whatever? Um, no, actually, these companies, when you see a meeting in a really uh, effective self-managing team or organization, people are having tough difficult adult to adult conversations with care but directness and frankness and that i think is the key actually right and it reminds me of um uh, another guest raj sisodia who wrote the healing organization and he starts i think it's the first chapter in his book he talks about this importance of the marriage of feminine and masculine energy and that's important for each of us as individuals to nurture and develop our healthy masculine and feminine sides but just as important in an organization right and almost defines a healing organization as one that's embodied both yeah definitely. what you're talking about here yeah yeah i think that's happening i think in some ways if you take like holacracy in some ways you could describe that as quite a masculine framework um and i think it's really interesting to see how brian robertson and holacracy one are encouraging people to complement it with other I think he also calls them apps, actually, like things like nonviolent communication, for example, which you could say are the more feminine pieces, because I think it takes both. Um, so I think it's interesting to see how that's unfolding as well, like this mix of masculine and feminine and sort of the, the, the hard and the soft. Yeah. Fantastic. OK, well, maybe that's a good uh, motif to, to end this on. Uh as a male talking to a female and having <laughs> had a wonderful conversation. Uh, good. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Lisa. Again, for people watching, here's, here's, the, uh, here's, the, um, here's the book. Um, and for people listening, we'll put a link. Moose Heads on the Table. Karen Ten Tenelius. Tenelius, yeah. Tenelius. There we are. And Lisa Gill. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been you. a pleasure. And uh, yeah, 
Uh, I hope, uh, yeah, look, well, I look forward to the next collection of stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, perhaps the next book is a collection of the podcast stories. Unless I'm collecting okay. lots of those. Yeah, great idea. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, It's been great. Thank you very much. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.